plastics. I'm writing these words as a hailstorm of dead branches rains down from the 150-year-old ash tree in my backyard. The tree is suffering from an attack of the emerald ash borer, which is a beetle that made its way to North America from China in the early 90s. Since its arrival, it's been gradually making its way across the continent, spreading from ash tree to ash tree, and though it's possible to treat ash trees with protective insecticide, it's all but inevitable that the trees the borer attacks will eventually die. This means that like the chestnut tree before it, ash trees will eventually become all but extinct in North America. The ash tree in my backyard was most likely planted at the time the house was constructed, in the 1870s. It's a big old thing. The arborist who's currently attached to a rope high up in the tree told me it might be the tallest one in the whole neighborhood. So you can imagine how much of an impact losing the tree would have. Not only does its massive canopy, spanning the width of my own house as well as three of my neighbors, keep our house cool and our yard shady in the hot summers, it's also home to a large population of various types of birds, squirrels, and even bats, all of which bring life to our urban yard all year long. But as the ash borer infestation progresses, one of the symptoms is that some of the tree's branches start to die. And when they do, especially in a place like Quebec that receives a large amount of snow in the winter, they become potentially dangerous since dead branches become weaker over time and can eventually end up snapping. This means that if we don't want to cut the tree down, we need to get some trimmers up there to keep it in decent shape for as long as possible. That is something I've always been on board with. But as I sit here and watch the branches rain down from above outside my window, I feel that my heart is heavy, and I find myself facing a predicament, an associated anxiety, that I've become all too familiar with in the time that I've lived here. But first, we need some context. Let me rewind a few years to the winter of 2020 when we first bought this house. Here's the visual. It's a brick row house with a little backyard of maybe 25 by 15 feet, in a neighborhood of Montreal called Point St. Charles, which is one of the oldest neighborhoods in the city built by Irish immigrants who came over in the mid-19th century to escape the potato famine. At that time, indoor plumbing was not yet a thing, so most of these places were built without bathrooms. And the backyards, which had been farmland not long before, were most likely used for the outhouses. Fast forward through a century and a half of uses varying from recreation to neglect, and we arrive at the state the yard was in when we got the place, which was that about 70% of the yard had been covered with a wooden deck under a blanket of neon blue and purple paint, and the remaining 30% hidden beneath a big old roll of astroturf. The only remaining sign of life in the yard at that point was the tree, which protruded from a hole that had been cut out of the astroturf just wide enough to accommodate the old thing's trunk. Given that one of the reasons we bought this place was because it had a yard that we could use to grow a garden, we knew from the start that we'd have to remove all that stuff. But as we peeled back the layers of plastic and wood and rusty metal, and as we began to notice that the neon blue deck paint had been chipping away over the years and leaving a universe of tiny flakes of the most unnatural color scattered throughout the entire yard, and as we began to uncover a seemingly infinite number of artifacts, batteries and scrap metal and wires and bits of plastic and tar, and as we pulled up the astroturf and the 12 inches of crushed stone that lay beneath it to finally lay eyes on the bare dirt below to discover that it was no longer even dirt, but an ultra-fine and probably heavily leaded powder scattered across a brick of clay. After all that, it became clear just how much this land had changed since the forest that it originally was was cut down. It was dead. There's an unsettling feeling working with dirt that has absolutely no life at all in it. 
And though I realize that this is probably the case for a lot of urban land, especially in areas that survived the industrial period of the last century, where petroleum byproducts oozed out of pretty much everything we did, and lead from leaded gasoline rained down from the sky, for me this was something new. No plants, no earthworms, no bugs. The only sign of life in all that soil was our ash tree, and soon that would be dead too. That deadness was not just a matter of a lack of beauty. It's tempting to code a situation like this as one with a purchasable solution. After all, what was the yard missing? Some plants? Could we not just go to the nursery and buy them? Dig a few holes in the ground and put them in and call it a day? I'd like to take a detour here. Let me pose a question. What is the difference between a forest and an arboretum? They're both a collection of trees, and yet they are clearly two different things. What is it that denotes that difference? Is it the fact that an arboretum is managed and charges an admission fee and the other doesn't? Well, no, because there are also plenty of forests that also charge admission fees. In fact, there's a rather beautiful one maintained by McGill University not far from my house. Is it the fact that arboretums feature exotic and foreign species of plants, whereas forests have native ones? Again, no, because arboretums also have sections for native plants. And if there were an arboretum that decided to have exclusively native plants, that wouldn't make it any less an arboretum. And what's more, there are also plenty of forests, too many in fact, that contain exotic and invasive plants. Perhaps it's the signs and labels then. The fact that we can learn about tree species in an arboretum, whereas a forest is free from informational signage. But again, this can't be true, because there are many authentic forests in which trees have been tagged and marked for both informational purposes and for research purposes. So how is it possible then, that when we walk into a cluster of trees, that we can almost immediately tell whether it's an arboretum or a forest? The answer is, at least in some sense, simple. Forests are alive. And here the word life is the poetic way, the human way, of describing a phenomenon I've been circling on this podcast since the first episode, what the scientific world calls complexity. Complexity is something I want to talk about in depth, because I believe it is fundamental to our existence. I also believe that, of the many ways humans sometimes fail to live up to our own expectations for ourselves, a disproportionate percentage of those cases are thanks to a poor understanding of the subject. It's a big subject. I don't expect to be able to cover it with a single podcast, but I do plan to call it out when it comes up in the hope that, if I do it enough, it will start to form a bigger, more intuitive picture of how complexity weaves in and out of almost everything. But since we're encountering it for the first time here, let me throw out a quick formal definition. What is complexity? Complexity is the opposite of complicatedness. That may sound confusing because we often use those two words as synonyms, but they are actually quite distinct. Something that is complicated is something that can be completely understood. This doesn't mean that it is easy to understand, per se, but merely that it is possible. Complicated things have lots of parts and components that interact with each other in an intentional and controlled way, and which together form a complete system, designed from the outside, to work in one specific way. These are things like airplanes and iPhones and HVAC systems and math problems. In a complicated system, when one part breaks, the whole thing stops working as intended, and they therefore require redundancy, additional complicated systems that can kick in if the main system fails, which are themselves susceptible to the same sort of failures. On the other hand, something that is complex has no discrete intended function. 
Instead, it has emergent behavior. Emergent behavior is what happens as a result of the infinite ways in which each of the individual parts interact with each other. These interactions cannot be called complicated because it is impossible to completely understand them. But they are also not random because they nevertheless form patterns that may not be predictable but are absolutely recognizable. These are things like weather patterns, human societies, the human body, and of course, the kinds of ecosystems one might find in a forest. Now, you may be thinking, what do you mean that these things are impossible to understand? We understand the human body, and we understand the weather. If we didn't, how would we be able to treat disease and predict the weather? This is a good question, and there's an important distinction to be made here. When we say we understand things like the weather, what we really mean is that we have identified patterns that are familiar to us. And just like any other kind of pattern, what those patterns do is they enable us to make probabilistic guesses as to what might happen next. But that is not the same thing as knowing where every single molecule of atmospheric gas is right now, and where those molecules will be at some point in the future. When we describe the weather, we don't talk about which particles of sand are going to end up where, or how many joules of energy will be transferred from one region to another. We say things like, it will be windy here tomorrow, or it's going to be hot next week. We are describing patterns. Here's another way to think about it. Picture a checkers board. Imagine I take two checkers pieces and I place them on the board, and then I ask you to describe the state of the board to me. How would you do it? Probably you'd say something like, there's a piece in the upper left corner in position A1, and another piece two spaces to the right at A3. Now go ahead and picture a much bigger checkers board, with many times more squares than a normal one. And imagine that I use the pieces to make an image, like with pixels on a computer screen. I place pieces in squares, arranging them in the shape of a sunflower. And then I ask you the same question. Describe the state of this checkers board to me. In this case, are you going to go through each individual piece saying, there's a piece at A2, A5, A17, B1, B5, B6, B7, B12, and so on and so forth? Or are you simply going to say, the pieces are arranged in the shape of a sunflower. That difference is the difference between complicated and complex things. The first board was complicated. It was something that could be known completely, where we knew exactly where every piece on the board was. But the second one crossed the threshold where it became easier to describe in terms of an emergent pattern rather than the state of each individual piece. We understand what we're seeing. It's a flower. But if we dumped all the pieces off the board, Though we could recreate a similar image, we would not be able to recreate that exact image piece for piece and know for certain that we had done it exactly correctly. Now, I can already hear some of you shouting back at me, telling me that I'm crazy because it so obviously is possible to know the state of every checkers piece on that second bigger board. And those people would not be wrong. But it's important to understand that the idea here is not to search for a hard limit to the amount of information that can be stored in our brains or in a computer. Of course, if we cared to do so, we could make use of a sophisticated technology called writing things down in order to record the state of every piece on the board and subsequently recreate the image on demand. And as technology continues to improve, the amount of data we could store in a computer is vast, meaning that the point at which these sorts of problems cross the boundary from the complicated to the complex is much farther out than it was when we were working with our brains alone. But none of that matters, because no matter how much information we can contain within a complicated system, there will, by definition, always be infinitely more information outside of the system. Remember that in the real world, we're not simply dealing with a checkers board and the idea that each piece fits nicely into a single square. 
In the real world, there are no squares, but actually an infinite number of places the pieces could be, and an infinite number of sizes and shapes they could be, and an infinite number of both known and unknown forces that act on them. Continuously. Yes, we can model some of the most obvious ones, and put that information in a database. But even if those models were 100% complete, which they aren't, for every one model, there are an infinite number of other ones we either can't model or don't even know about. Basically, what this all means is that in order to turn a complex system into a complicated one, we would need a computer that contained all the information available in the entire universe. But since that computer itself is part of the universe, that is mathematically impossible. And it will therefore remain impossible for us to have the type of control over complex systems that we have over complicated ones. And this is the reason that when we do things like predict the weather, we do it by utilizing patterns to make statistical guesses. Guesses that, like any other probabilistic prediction, are not always correct. Incidentally, this is also the reason that, despite everything we know about the human body, perfect health and well-being remains beyond our reach. In a complicated system, you can test it by giving it some sort of input and watching what happens. It is possible to identify a model that completely explains the behavior, and to not predict, but to know how that input will affect the system. But the human body is complex, not complicated. It is impossible for us to systematize the infinite interactions between the cells and the chemicals and bacteria and foreign particles and viruses and even the things that those things themselves are made up of. And this is the reason that different people react to different foods and medicines and external stimuli differently, and the reason I believe that simply declaring that certain foods are quote-unquote healthy and certain drugs are quote-unquote safe implies an understanding of the human body that is at best misleading and which borders on unethical on account of the fact that it teaches people to overlook complexity and view their bodies in overly reductive ways, and to make potentially harmful choices as a result. Once again, I'm going to have to leave a deep dive on this topic for another episode. For now, let's take our understanding of complexity and revisit the Arboretum. My question was, what exactly is the difference between an Arboretum and a forest? And now we have a straightforward answer. The difference between the Arboretum and the Forest is that the Arboretum is complicated, whereas the Forest is complex. Like the first checkers board, in the Arboretum we know exactly where all the trees are, and how they got there. That information lives in a computer somewhere. When one of those trees dies, a decision will actively be made on whether to replace it. And if one of the trees isn't getting enough water, someone will be sent out to water it. And if seeds from one type of tree get carried by a squirrel to a different spot and end up germinating in the quote-unquote wrong area, they'll be weeded out. And if an animal decides to build a nest in the root system of a particular tree, that animal will be exterminated or removed. And if a disease affects one of these trees, it will be quickly treated or replaced altogether to prevent it from spreading to the rest of the trees. All these things are the types of control we exercise in a closed, complicated system. The goal in the Arboretum is to know everything that is happening within its boundaries and to manually manipulate each piece in order to sustain the outcome we want. And consequently, if we were to stop exercising this sort of control even briefly, the system would rapidly collapse. In early post-war Japan, there was a farmer named Masanobu Fukuoka who encountered this phenomenon firsthand. He took over a small citrus orchard from his father and having observed that trees happily grow everywhere, and appear quite capable of looking after themselves, he decided that he would abandon the traditional practice of actively pruning the branches and simply let the trees grow. But what he found was that the unpruned trees did extremely poorly, 
and the branches started to snap under the weight of the additional growth. This surprised him. Why was it that a wild tree could survive on its own without issue, when these ones in the orchard could not? Fukuoka-san would end up dedicating most of his life to answering this question, and his ideas eventually ended up becoming The One Straw Revolution, the 1975 book that made him famous. In it, he describes his discovery, that it was the pruning of the trees itself that introduced the requirement that they continue to be pruned by removing the trees from their complex environment and placing them in the care of a human-controlled system. A tree that has never been pruned could not possibly grow into the shapes that managed trees do, because its many branches would continuously be kept from overgrowing. These small, plentiful branches would break off the moment they became too heavy, and the energy for that branch would be redistributed throughout the rest of the tree, causing it to grow in a balanced and resilient way. In contrast, the managed tree gets pruned to favor certain branches, particularly the ones that make growing and harvesting convenient, over others. New, unwanted branches are pruned away so that all the energy can go to the desired ones. This means that those few favored branches grow large, and if they are suddenly left unpruned, the new growth becomes so heavy that the branches snap catastrophically. It was the very act of caring for the trees that caused them to become unable to care for themselves. Fukuoka-san eventually channeled this insight into a philosophy called do-nothing farming, in which he advocated for abandoning farming techniques based on human control of the environment, especially via the petrochemical fertilizers and pesticides that were being pushed aggressively by American influences in the post-war period. He suggested that, much like his fruit trees, we would see similar effects anywhere we attempted to tame complexity, both in the context of farming and beyond. And indeed, we are seeing now that much of what he predicted is coming true, as many of the crises we're beginning to hear more and more about, the shocking decline in the number of bees and pollinators, toxic algae blooms, soil degradation, and about a billion other interrelated health and environmental problems, can be traced back to the industrial farming practices we've now overwhelmingly adopted, and which at their core are attempts to replace the complex processes of the last several millennia with new, complicated ones that are fundamentally unsustainable and are, after only 75 years or so, showing some seriously concerning cracks. And what's terrifying is that, much like Fukuoka-san's fruit trees, we have erased the possibility of going back. We've created a fully controlled food production system that has carved its components out from the fabric of complexity and connected them to a human-centric life support system. The use of chemical fertilizer, for example, has sterilized our soil, causing it to become void of organic matter and killing the creatures and microorganisms that kept it healthy, which has left the soil unable to retain moisture or provide nutrients to would-be crops. This means that fertilizer and irrigation are now the only ways to grow food on fields that once all but volunteered their bounty. And the complex and balanced ecosystem of birds and bugs that once kept pests in check has been eradicated, which means that pesticides are now the only way to keep crops healthy, where once the idea of an infestation was almost unheard of. And what is most depressing of all is that even faced with all these obvious problems, clearly the products of the flawed modern way of thinking, many of the solutions that get proposed are new, complicated inventions designed to address some obvious and overly reductive symptom of the problem and which do not seem to recognize their existence in an endless game of whack-a-mole in which there are an infinite number of holes the mole could poke its head out of. These solutions are not so much solutions as they are converters that transform problems into new problems. Complexity is the only thing that can handle these types of problems because complex systems match infinity with infinity. 
They do not ever need to wait for a problem to be identified in order to invent a solution for it, because those problems exist in a balanced system and are nudged back toward a new equilibrium state the moment they come into existence. Too many aphids? More food for beetles, so the beetle population grows. More beetles means more food for birds, so the bird population grows. More birds means more food for foxes, so the fox population grows. And more foxes means more coyotes, mountain lions, wolves, and too many of those means too much competition for food, meaning that the number of them that will survive will perfectly match the number the ecosystem can produce. Balance is preserved in real time, and not just by way of this specific chain of creatures, which I'm using here to illustrate the effect, but by everything that exists, constantly interacting with everything else that exists. I hesitate to use examples like this one, which highlight familiar entities like animals and familiar interactions like the food chain. When we look at complexity and apply labels like animal and food chain to it, it can be tempting to treat it like the checkers board, a discrete playing field with a finite, countable number of items in it, and a finite number of processes via which they interact. The label implies that a food chain is one discrete, known thing with a documentable function. And that lends itself to the false belief that it is possible to simply use science to identify all such discrete things and all possible interactions between them, which can give a sense that the places we have failed have simply been the places where we've overlooked a component or two. And that now that we've identified those new components, the picture is now complete, the way we previously assumed it was, prior to the discovery of such missing pieces. But the reality is that these things are not discrete, like the flower on the checkers board, they are simply patterns, themselves comprised of patterns, themselves comprised of patterns. Patterns, all bumping up against each other, all the way down. We might look at something like the ocean and identify a pattern called a wave. We know what a wave looks like. It's an easily recognizable phenomenon, but it is not discrete. There is no place that individual water molecules stop being part of the wave and start being part of the ocean around it. It's simply that the molecules at the center of the wave are the ones most significantly affected by the pattern, and as we move farther and farther away from that pattern, the water molecules are less and less a part of it. But make no mistake, they are still a part of it. No matter how far away we get from that one single wave, every single water molecule in the entire ocean is affected by that one little wave. And yes, that effect eventually becomes so infinitesimally small that it can effectively be called zero and written off. But though it's very, very close to zero, it is not actually zero. And that is the nature of complexity. Everything is affected by everything else. That infinity of interactions is the reason that complex systems don't just feel alive, they are alive. Our bodies are comprised of cells. Those cells are alive, independent of us. They react to stimuli and to their environment. And those cells themselves come together to form organs, which are also alive. And those organs form bodies, which are alive. And though it can be tempting to end the chain there, that's not where it ends. It continues. Bodies come together with many other patterns of life to form ecosystems, which are alive as a product of the life within them, in the very same way that we are alive as the product of the life within us. And if you scrape a couple of cells off of us, that does not make us any less alive. And if you kill a few worms in the dirt, that does not make that ecosystem any less alive. But just like human beings, where scraping off enough cells in the right parts of the system will eventually kill us, removing the life from within an ecosystem will eventually kill the ecosystem. 
And when it dies, what it looks like is what my backyard looked like when I pulled up the AstroTurf. The mission that I set out on in April of 2021 was to bring that dead patch of dirt back to life. I wasn't interested in the standard backyardification protocol. I didn't want to simply dress it up with a handful of individually cupped marigolds from Home Depot, to plant ferns in a neat straight line along the back wall, to pour a concrete slab and throw some plastic chairs on it and top it off with an umbrella. I wasn't interested in those things because for every decent looking house that had that sort of thing, there were five more that had had them long enough for them to have started to decay, for the plastic skin on the umbrella to begin to break apart and crumble away from UV exposure, and for the chairs to turn that sickly yellow color that transforms plastic into trash, waiting to be thrown away. And most importantly, for the plants to die, and for the barren patch of concrete to become the only thing left, a stone barrier doing nothing but preserving death by denying the earth underneath access to restorative rainwater and sunlight. In this approach to design, which is sadly the one that has come to dominate much of the world in the 21st century, the buffer time between new backyard and concrete trash heap is almost vanishingly short. And those who wish to keep up appearances are simply expected to throw it all out and replenish with a fresh Amazon purchase. Somehow we've turned even the simplest of activities, sitting somewhere nice outside in the shade, into embarrassingly wasteful processes dependent on petroleum products and the Amazon industrial complex. But armed with insights I had gathered over the years, I knew there was a better way. I knew it wouldn't be easy. I knew that the standard process of replacing time and effort with purchasable and conveniently packaged products would not apply. I knew that there would be work I would have to do myself over long periods of time. And I knew that ultimately I would need to relinquish absolute control over the outcome. But I also knew that in doing so, I would no longer simply be adding temporary decoration to dead space. I would be starting an engine of life that, once running, would continue to run indefinitely, taking care of itself, nurturing itself, reproducing itself, adapting itself, through the nature of its own complexity. I would be growing a forest, not curating an arboretum. The project kicked off when a handful of maple trees germinated in a layer of compost I had put down. Though we don't have enough space outside for a proper compost pile, we do use a cylinder composter to make quick work of food scraps and to make sure their nutrients end up in our soil instead of at the dump or in the sewer system. When the cylinder fills up, I scatter the compost throughout the yard, and worms, creatures which were decidedly absent not long ago, show up to eat it. And in theory, and also hopefully in practice, the bacteria and fungi in the compost remain and spread and introduce some life into the dirt, making it more habitable for other life forms that may decide to show up, which it did when those first few sprouts showed up. I don't know where they came from, but that hardly matters. What matters is that the seeds arrived, germinated, and began to grow. You might recall that at the beginning of this episode, I mentioned there's a big ash tree that shades much of my yard. That makes for an official classification of the amount of light our space gets as full to part shade, which according to the purveyors of plants, means that plants which require full sun are not suitable for our yard. Maple happens to be one such plant. And indeed, if we were to go to a nursery and purchase a maple sapling, the label on the pot would indicate that it requires full sun. And if I were to dig a hole in my shady yard and plop it in, it would almost certainly suffer due to lack of sunlight. But once again, we are noticing the type of consequences that Fukuoka-san noticed with his fruit trees. That maple tree, grown in a pot in a vast open area, 
had been regularly exposed to a huge amount of sun, and so it used that energy. It used it to grow many leaves to capture more and more of that energy. And every time it decided to extend a new branch, it encountered no resistance because the pot had been placed away from other plants that may have crowded it. And so the leaves on that new branch caught even more sun. And so it sent branches everywhere and grew leaves everywhere, and by all accounts, it flourished. And so when we transplanted it to our shady garden, all of a sudden that tree no longer has the energy it once had to power all those branches and leaves. And so it must tap the energy it had stored in its roots to survive. But after a year or two of shady summers that aren't enough to replenish those reserves, the root energy is tapped out and the tree becomes weak. And it's at this point that the modern landscaper looks at it and decides that a mistake has been made. We planted a full sun tree in a full shade garden. It was always doomed to die. Maples need sun. But this isn't what happened to my volunteer maple sprouts. And in fact, not only did they not die, they thrived. How is that possible? Once again, it's the label that's the problem. Full sun implies a discrete reality that simply doesn't exist. Yes, maples can do well in full sun because they're able to process a lot of sunlight and grow quickly as a result. But it's also true that maples grow in forests and that when they're samaras, which is what those seeds that spin like helicopters when they fall are called, when those things fall to the ground, they land and subsequently germinate on a forest floor that is almost entirely shaded, where they simply grow more slowly and conservatively, waiting for the moment when an older tree falls and allows more sunlight to reach the forest floor, which they can use to shoot up quickly and take the old tree's place. Full sun is therefore a meaningless binary term that ignores the complexity of the living maple within its living environment. The extent to which a maple is actually full sun is a product of time and the context in which it has lived thus far. They, like all living things, take on the shape and character of their environment, producing forms that are irreplaceable, in that they are uniquely adapted to a specific place and a specific time. This adaptedness is the thing that can't be purchased at Home Depot. It's one of a kind. Priceless. Over the course of several years now, this is how the burgeoning ecosystem in my yard has developed. Some more volunteers have shown up, some via air, some via squirrel and other critter transport, and some unknown entirely. And I've strategically accepted donations from friends who had similar surprises, sprouts appearing in gardens and balcony pots and the like. And because the volunteers are more likely to be those species that are common in urban areas, I've also made attempts to fill in some of the diversity gaps by lifting the occasional sprout from a healthy ecosystem and transplanting it wherever it'll fit. And I have never as part of this process followed many of the traditional rules because those rules tend not to be optimized for the health of an ecosystem, but rather for the survival of the individual plants, which someone has typically paid good money for. They are rules like, make sure the plant has this much space around its roots and this much sunlight per day, and that the soil has a certain amount of acidity and a certain amount of organic matter, and don't forget the chemical fertilizer. Rules that are designed for an arboretum. Rules that all but guarantee a frantic relationship to the plants, of inspecting each individual one and wondering why it's not doing as well as it should be, and questioning whether the treatment for one plant is the poison for another one, and ultimately inventing some kind of fable we tell ourselves as an explanation as to why in the end, whether it's six months, a year, five years, or a lifetime later, it doesn't really matter. In the end, we failed and why the plants we put in the ground simply died and disappeared, never to return. Instead of following such rules, my approach has been to cultivate life that extends beyond the individual plants, 
to create an ecosystem where a single plant dying is like a single cell in our body dying, harmless and automatically replaced. This, it should be said, is far from a straightforward process, but rather one of experimentation. When I place plants too close together, sometimes they simply die, but other times they might compete with each other for sunlight, growing tall quickly and spreading outward in opposing directions. And when I introduce new species, sometimes they find a vacant niche, and other times they don't. Sometimes species thrive for a single season and then fail to come back the following year. Other times they all but die out immediately, only to make a glorious comeback in subsequent seasons. And sometimes these new species themselves create the conditions required for the success of others. Seeds that failed to germinate in the dead, dry soil might have success in the rich, wet soil shaded from evaporation underneath the leaves of another plant, living off the nutrients in the decomposing leaves dropped in the previous season. With each introduction, and each iteration, and each experiment, the equilibrium state, the effect of all these living beings bumping up against each other, laying roots in the soil and modifying its composition, adding and removing nutrients and gases, changing its texture, growing and consuming some sunlight while letting other bits through, and taking on forms that are initially pliable, bending around the features of the yard, and gradually becoming more and more rigid year over year. That state of life becomes something that increasingly resembles a living being of higher order that is truly of its environment, taking on its physical shape and finding the unique harmony of patterns that works best not in a vacuum, and not just locally, but in this specific 25 by 15 patch of earth. As the engine of complexity roars to life, it becomes more and more resilient, and more and more capable of repairing itself. And unlike the row of plastic-cut marigolds that simply dies and disappears when stepped on, a damaged area in this ecosystem, which is surrounded by so much entropy, seeds from a great variety of plants dropped in previous years, all vying to sprout in a patch of healthy soil, further enriched by the damaged plants decomposing and releasing their nutrition back into the ground, and existing plants and sprouts yearning to grow into the newly available space, a damaged area like that heals automatically. Where novelty plants need to be watered, the complex garden uses fallen leaves and decomposed organic matter as mulch to preserve its own moisture. And where novelty plants need to be fertilized, those same decomposing plants decompose in place, meaning that the nutrients never leave the soil in the first place, and therefore don't need to be replaced. Where novelty plants require complicated processes like cold stratification in order for their seeds to germinate, the seeds in the complex garden are provided the exact conditions they need to germinate simply by being left outside in the dirt, exposed to the weather all year long. It seems obvious, but somehow, our world of instruction manuals and commercialized everything has made it all too easy to forget that the complicated processes we find described on labels of potted plants are simply attempts to manually replicate the processes that were provided automatically by complexity. And the fact that complexity is something that can only really be understood intuitively makes it profoundly difficult to fix the problems caused by its absence. In computer science, there's a concept called recursion, which is what happens when a function calls itself as part of its execution. And for beginner programmers, it is a concept that is notoriously challenging to intuitively understand. In layman's terms, recursion is kind of like using a word as part of the definition of that same word. It's typically used to solve problems that can be broken down into smaller versions of the same problem. So the program will start with the big problem, break it up into smaller chunks, and then say, run this program again on these smaller chunks. And then there are now several versions of that same program running, 
And each of those take their smaller chunk as an input and break that down into even smaller chunks and say, run this program again on these chunks. What makes complexity difficult to understand is the same thing that makes recursion hard to understand. It's the idea that we are not simply operating on a single item, which we can visualize in our mind's eye, but actually on a pattern, itself comprised of and related to many other patterns, which are themselves comprised of many other patterns. It keeps going indefinitely, which means it's not possible to analyze the behavior by starting at the beginning and following it to the end. The only way to understand it is to develop an intuitive sense of the pattern and to let that pattern be a substitute for our natural desire to want to know everything there is to know. Because in a system in which everything is connected, everything there is to know is everything that there is. If you recall at this point, it's been a while, I started this episode out amidst a hailstorm of branches raining down from the ash tree in my backyard. A wood chipper had been set up on the street just on the other side of my fence, and a steady stream of contractors was filing in and out through the gate in my fence, lifting the fallen branches and dragging them back out to the chipper. The way the yard is laid out, the path to the gate curves around an area that is well on its way to becoming wooded, the area in which those first couple maples, now a few seasons old, started to grow, and in which a raspberry bramble, seeded with a raspberry plant that I transplanted from a wooded area on a friend's farm, was starting to take hold. In this same area, in the undergrowth, there are maidenhair ferns, a type of fern so delicate that the mere existence of humans has caused it to become endangered in the wild. There are also tiny sprouts of only a couple inches of a wide variety of plants that decided to germinate the previous season. And given that it is currently winter, all of this is merely protruding like little straws from a blanket of snow. At least it was until this whole operation started. A unique feature of raspberry plants, the thing that causes them to grow into brambles rather than bushes, is that as their branches grow, they become very long and start to tip over, as if reaching outward. And when they get so long that they touch the ground again, they send out new roots to anchor that branch to the ground and use it as a new home base from which to send out further shoots. And the result of this growth pattern is that the branches form what look like hoops that both start and end in the ground. When the contractor showed up, I had hoped that the existence of these thorny hoops would be an obvious cue to avoid my burgeoning wooded area. But I soon found out that it wasn't. It turned out that the prospect of walking around that wooden area instead of through it, a detour requiring no more than about five extra seconds, was simply too inconvenient. Instead, the workers trudged straight through my woods in their steel-toed boots. They snapped the previous year's sprouts and when they encountered the hoops of the raspberry bramble, they simply plowed right through them, causing their roots to be torn out of the ground, or in the cases where the roots managed to hold fast, snapping the woody hoop in two. I don't know if these workers didn't know what they were doing or simply didn't care, but ultimately, it doesn't much matter. If they didn't know, it would have been because they'd been unable to recognize the little sprouts and tiny trees as anything other than weeds, because in their minds, anything that had been done intentionally would have been much more substantial and bigger and straighter than a few random twigs poking out of the snow. And if they didn't care, it would have been because they looked at each of these individual twigs and ascribed them a dollar value, like any other product. If I break your window, I pay you this much to fix it. And if I break your plant, I pay you that much to replace it. They would have looked at the thousands of dollars we were paying them to trim the tree and asked themselves, What's 10 or 20 bucks to replace a little piece of decoration compared to that? These things are a dime a dozen. What kind of sense does it make for me to make my own work more difficult over something so insignificant and replaceable? It doesn't matter which of these is the truth, because both of them result from the same thing. 
a problematic and arguably even catastrophic failure to teach and to account for complexity in the way we live and in the way our societies function. This episode with the tree is not the first time this has happened to me. Over the course of the time I've owned this house, I've become a much handier person than I ever suspected I would need to be, because I've learned that no matter how sincerely I request that the people I hire to be respectful of our plants, it is almost impossible to make that request in a way that conveys its true meaning, that I am not being a ridiculous person who just doesn't want to make another trip to the nursery, but that I am protecting life itself, life that is bigger than those individual trampled plants. I find it almost impossible to convey the idea that I have spent the last several years starting the engine of life, and that the actions of one reckless being threatened to exterminate it at a critical moment, just as it was starting to find its footing, when it was still on the cusp of being able to defend itself. The pain that I feel when I watch this life take such a beating is the kind I feel when watching any living thing taking a beating. These contractors think exclusively in terms of dollar values, but dollar values are irrelevant here. A plant that has grown for many years as part of a complex system is not simply more valuable than one available at a nursery. It is priceless, because the only thing that can possibly replace it is time, and time is something that cannot be purchased. And this brings us back to the ash tree. In spite of all the problems that stem from suppressing and ignoring complexity, it is also a reality that much of what keeps modern life operating smoothly must necessarily exist apart from it. Though they aren't without drawbacks, there are tangible benefits to things like well-defined property lines and assignment of ownership and responsibility. In fact, it's likely that cities as we know them could not function without them. That's not to say that there isn't a better way, one that's more capable of making use of complexity rather than fighting it off. And I suspect that one of the more interesting uses of emerging tech in the AI space could be in identifying and operating such alternatives. But so long as we're living collectively in the traditional way, we're on the hook for maintaining our cities, neighborhoods, and homes in the same way Fukuoka-san's father maintained his fruit trees. That means that simply ignoring our end-of-life ash tree and letting its branches die and start to break off and fall and damage roofs and potentially hurt people on the street below is just not an option. But it is here that I start to feel the tension and the brewing anxiety, because while I know I can't avoid such interventions, I also know that it will be impossible to explain to my neighbors with whom I share responsibility and maintenance expenses for the tree, why, if we must trim the tree, we should at least figure out a way to do it gently. In the times I've tried, my efforts have usually been met with assurances that the contractors have insurance, and that if they damage anything, they'll be certain to reimburse me for it. Push the issue any further than that, and the hand-waving starts, and I get reminded of my official status as the tree-hugging Californian of the group. As I mentioned, a big part of the reason I've been motivated to start this series was to help introduce complexity and to shine a bit more light on the ways in which it's woven into our lives. I think that's important, because in this particular situation, as in many others, I can't help but wonder if this problem simply wouldn't exist if complexity were more broadly taught and understood. After all, we are quite good at incorporating logic of the complicated variety into the basic knowledge we expect our population to have. Most people are well aware, for example, that sticking a fork in an electrical outlet or mixing ammonia with bleach are things to be avoided. Though they seem obvious to us, that knowledge doesn't just manifest as part of the nature of existence. It must be taught. We're taught what the properties of electricity are from a young age, and we therefore learn to recognize the situations that it could be problematic, even if we've never explicitly seen them before. I believe that something similar could be accomplished by incorporating complexity into curriculums and teaching people to identify it and recognize its patterns. 
And I believe that if we were to do that, it would have a significant positive impact on our societies and on the world. Or at the very least, maybe I wouldn't have to field so many of my neighbor's questions about why the lone fern they planted in the corner of their yard never seems to manage to survive while mine are thriving. I'm going to wrap this up with one final thought. There is an undeniable tension in our time between the desire for knowledge and control and our lament at the disappearance of mystery and wonder. Bill Watterson, the guy who created Calvin and Hobbes, just published his first work in many years, a short illustrated story about exactly that, the idea that we've traded the mysteries that both terrified and inspired us for a convenient, safe, and predictable version of life, founded on the relative ability to fully control our environment. Given that outside of some sort of catastrophe, it is impossible to put the cat back in the bag, we cannot simply reclaim such mystery by moving backwards. What we've learned, we are doomed to know. And in accepting that, there's a temptation to move in the direction of nihilism. But it's my sense that there is hope in complexity. Because complexity is what has the magical property of being able to offer both of these things at the same time. It is both comprehensible, yet impossible to understand. It is indescribable, but instantly recognizable. It is both ordered and completely random. Complexity is how we reconcile our insatiable desire for knowledge with our equally powerful desire to be surprised and inspired and to experience awe. And it is therefore complexity, living ecosystems, and decidedly not novelty crap like escape rooms and dinky speakeasy cocktail bars that we can rely on to enrich our lives with meaning in the years to come. Once again, thanks for listening.